everybody and welcome to this episode of WTS Pod 207. What's the story podcast? My name's Danny Murray. And I'm Graham Morgan. Sorry for interrupting. Oh, you're grand, you're grand, you're alright. I mean, you just got your name, which is more or less where I was going anyway. And just as oh, I'm okay. saying this, you can hear the skills on the background quite possibly. My neighbours are up to all sorts again. At uh, nine o'clock in the evening. Nine o'clock in the evening, yeah, that's nothing. Usually they'll be I going around. And you can hear it, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Well, hopefully people can hear it on the microphone. It'll probably go in evidence in court one day because they're a shower <laughs> of fucking lunatics. But, sure, look. Uh, do you ever go into them? You can't, man. They're hillbilly. You can't, you can't. You can't interact with these people. They they're not Yeah. They're they're extremely antisocial and they're not very approachable. You couldn't you couldn't walk up to them and say, Ah, here lads, any chances could just keep the noise down a bit. They're just they're just not the sort of people for that. Why do they think it's appropriate at nine o'clock in the evening to start drilling? I man, like that's I am not even making this up. Like I have this probably shouldn't go on the podcast before <laughs> I've actually got. I've had to start keeping notes. It's got, it got real bad at one point, uh, and I actually have like notes on my phone and all. There was instances of it going on at like half one, two o'clock in the morning. Of drilling. Of, of like yeah, like a big skill saw starting up and just like just yeah, constantly like. Are what are they fucking and, digging in, in, into the ground? I don't know, man. Their back garden. There's always something being built out in their back garden or whatever. I don't. I don't know what industry they're in, but there, there's always. Like stuff coming in and stuff going out and all. Like they, they, they're they're operating something out of a house that probably shouldn't be operating out of a house. If that makes sense, it needs a kind of you know warehouse. In, a warehouse or some sort of industrial unit or whatever. But look, I'm I'm sure I'm sure to other people they're lovely people and I'm sure they're making an honest living and there's no issue for the tax re- revenue people at all to look into there at all. <clears throat> if you're listening, <laughs> Mister Mister Tax Revenue Person, <laughs> uh, Danny. But anyway, Graham. We got the Americans got a dog. You did. So after last week's episode, where you where you briefly mentioned that you were looking for a golden retriever, in the end, you 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 veered slightly off center on that. And what did you go for, Meryl? Well, we were we were on a list to get a golden retriever. Yeah. And the mummy of the golden retriever had eleven, a litter of eleven, and only five survived. Mm. So we um. So we, we were kind of let down, unfortunately, because of that. So we were still trying at that point to get a golden retriever, but um, such, as the, the, such as is the demand over the lockdown period, everyone feeling that, oh, maybe this would be a good time to get a dog because I'm at home, working from home. I can, I can yeah. train it. I can, it's not going to be on its own. Um, so the golden, we were basically told, God, you won't get a golden retriever until at least Christmas or beyond. Um, so then we were checking and Carl uh, found a Hungarian smooth-haired Vizsla. Um, saw it on Saturday morning. We made some inquiries. Um, he asked, when could we pick it up? And we said, when suits you? He said, well, the puppies are ready to go. They've, they're warmed. They're flayed. They're had their first injections, certified, everything. Yeah, and he said you could probably collect it tomorrow. So I drove to Leitrim with a hungover, very hungover, Carl, <laughs> um, to the lovely county of Leitrim, and we picked them up four days ago, and it's been a challenge. Yeah, will be with any any. And you have three in your life. I do, I do have three of them, but mine aren't pups anymore. You know, so. So the, the hard work is done. Then is that what you're saying? 
Mostly, yeah, they don't. There's still times where I want to punch them in the face, but then I know the people that pay that will come after me, so I can't do that. But uh, 90% of the time, that that I love them, and I like I'd, I'd rather have them in the house than I'd rather have humans in the house. You know what right. I mean? So look, I do. I love the dogs. And where where are they when you go to bed? Uh, they they're free roam in the house, so they just they just wandered about. They pick that spot. Polly curls up. Air, air stairs has like goes up two steps, then it bends. So one of the steps has a kind of large triangular shape, shall we say? She yeah. curls up on that. That's her step. She just curls up on that and goes asleep. So if you're going downstairs in the middle of the night, you do have to make sure you don't stand on little poly pops. And did they ever get up to and during the night? Like, do you know the way yours are loud? Yours nah, they're, they're, they're usually all right. Like if if an old cat now goes across the back wall during the night the three of them might start or you know Callie Callie will howl a little bit from time to time but they're never woken up during the night are they? the odd time and they, like we'd uh, get up in the middle of the night if I was getting up in the night now to go for a wee or whatever I'd go down and let them out as well it's only fair you know yeah yeah. so but you yeah, know they're good now they're good but they're, they're like I mean Callie's six and the other two are the other two are two do you know what I mean they're, and they're all like Callie's the mad they're the two pups so they're grand, like they're they're little. You think they know that? Well, Lubo definitely does because Lubo stayed with Callie. Like we, when we got Lubo, we adopted the ma as well, so they were never separated. Um, Polly, we got kind of a year or so after we, she had different circumstances, and ultimately we took her in. We because she was, yeah. But um, so I think, I think Callie and Lubo definitely have some sort of yoke, and I think Polly's slowly figuring out that like she's one of them. She's right. starting. She's starting to challenge Lupo a little bit more now to get into little scraps every so often. What was the most thing, the most challenging thing you found when raising a pup? Uh, chewing furniture. Right. Yeah. So we, when we moved into this house, we deliberately got like just cheap table and chairs for the kitchen because we knew we we're like Lupo's a pup. He's gonna fuck, and he did fucking eat it. Like, like yeah. we don't. We we don't have an intact corner. We, we started with four chairs. We now have two and a half. Uh, <laughs> genuinely, uh, there's, one of the, there's one of the chairs that's being held together by just goodwill and blue tack. Like, um, and did you not use any of the like the prevention? So loads of people saying get lemon juice and all that. Yeah, yeah. Huskies will eat anything. And I mean uh. anything, man. So like we've tried hot chili. We've tried uh, this, this spray you can get in the pet shop. Lemon juice. Uh, garlic. Nothing. All these kind of Lubo just sits there licking it, and he's like, "More, please!" Like he's just, you know what I mean? So, but uh, he's granted that, like we have a new table and chairs ordered now because they've kind of stopped chewing all that stuff, you know. And they had yeah. toys, they had toys everywhere. But just when he was going through that teething phase, obviously he he enjoyed like skirting boards. We've no skirting boards in the kitchen, but we do. But they're they're you know et by a husky. Really. <laughs> <laughs> we just lashed so, a load of white paint over them so like you have to look at it to notice but if you look at it you go something not right there, is there? <laughs> we, we've we've kept Suggsy primarily in the kitchen yeah. so there's not really much to damage in the kitchen as yet um, he hasn't he hasn't gone for any like he's because they're a kind of hunting dog he yeah. is trying to scrimmage and he's trying to pretend that his toys are are alive and all he has huge rows with the be- his bed and and the toys, and he's growling at all these things. But he goes along the edges of the house, like um, mm. as if there's something there, and he wants to 
scrape it and find it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was like, we're only four or five days in, and everyone <laughs> there hasn't been a bad word on the outside, like you know about getting it and 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 about the whole dog owner journey, mm. you know, saying. Once you get over the, the first couple of weeks, it's going to be brilliant. And yeah. it's just, as I suppose, when you're in the moment, you're kind of going, those next couple of weeks seem like a fucking million miles away. Yeah, they do. You know, yeah, you take, sure. when, when you think, I was thinking, I had it in my head based on nothing that um, potty training would, would take weeks, you know. Mm. And we got him on Sunday and he was nervous wreck. And God love me, he's just being separated from his mother and his siblings. Yeah. And um, he just he just shit in the corner of the, of the house or in the kitchen, just under the sink, just had a shit. Yeah. And yeah. then sure we've all done that. that. <laughs> yeah. Then after that, he settled, and the rug on your way in to the house, mm. or sorry, on your way out to the house, the back door, you kind of start using that as a place to go potty, but. I bring him outside after he has something to eat or after he wakes up and I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll tear the energy out of him and then sure enough he'll go for a pee or a shit. Um, but Jesus, man, it's hard work. I wouldn't have kids. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose the benefit of the dog is the dog can't give you a lip back. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it, it'll get older, but it won't won't be able to talk back. You know what I mean? No. So. And I meant to say to you as well, um, which was, this is real nice, um, I put a, a tweet out on Sunday um, of Suggsy and there was a comment saying like where inquiring where I got it he's been and the person said he'd been looking for a while for a Vizsla mm-hmm. so I messaged the man uh, on private message on Twitter and I gave him the breeder's details um, and the man was saying that um, he was told years ago to get a Vizsla because his daughter special needs and it's it's they're supposed to be great with kids with special needs so he's from Shankill and he's after getting the last puppy so Suggsy's right. uh, sibling is going to be living in Shankill oh, so a little play day could be in order absolutely when they get yeah, yeah when they get older yeah. yeah Jesus that's mad like it's yeah but um, I, I think you will I think you'll love it it is tough at the start but I like yeah when he gets a little bit older that he's not as destructive and all that and he just becomes a lovable kind of you know come on yeah. play with me or he just lovable wants to road. yeah or he just wants to curl up beside you and watch a bit of telly and all like that's yeah. do you know what I mean like Lubo from time to time now I love to hit Lubo top the hole because he's just a little messer but then I'll just be sitting there and he'll literally curl up into I don't know if you've ever seen do put photos up sometimes they literally swirl huskies they, they wrap up into a, like a little ball and they cover their face with their tail and uh, oh, uh... He, yeah, he just does that. He either does it on me foot or he'll jump up on the sofa beside me and do it. And I'm just like, sure, how can well, he be mad at you? You start to see their personalities and all that, yeah? Oh, yeah, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, they do. They all have their own little personalities. Like, Lubo's just, a, like, a head case. He just bombs around the house, doesn't care what he hits, what he runs into. He'll run headfirst into anything and he'll just, he, mm-hmm. he he thinks he's the leader. Like, he thinks he's the alpha. Like, he's not Cali is. What, but, what's know, the story podcast very own correspondent, Gary Mackle? He's got two Shih Tzus. He does. Um, and when he when he grooms them, um, when he gets them groomed, yeah, yeah. and they he put the that that even and their home in the house, they have a sulk on their face because yeah. they hate getting groomed. I think and he was they saying, have a real attitude. Yeah, I think he was he, he he talked about this. I think on one of the episodes he was on where he was saying Gizmo in particular was being uh, uh, extremely disrespectful to him. And yeah, he was he wasn't impressed at all now. 
But uh, yeah, it's dogs are great. Yeah, that was a nice intro about dogs. So, who, who are we speaking to this week on 207? Uh, well, before before I get into that, just if anybody wants to send, I would love seeing dog stuff on Twitter and all that. So, if anybody wants to hit us up on Twitter with stories or photos of their dogs, do. It'll brighten yeah. our day up at WTS Pod. Joining us this week on What's the Story podcast is CEO, co founder of Inner City Help and Homeless, um, homeless advocate and independent counselor for Dublin Central. Councillor Anthony Flynn, thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. How are you? All good, all good. Yeah. yeah appreciate your time over Wednesday evening. Probably very busy with a lot of things going on. How, how's lockdown? No, yeah. lockdown. Like, you know, other than other than, other than doing Zoom or, or Skype calls. Skype, yeah, that's what you're just saying. Yeah, we're not, we're not up with the kids and, and using Zoom. We're still mm. back in like the early noughties using Zoom. Um, <laughs> are, are using Skype? Even. Using Skype. Yeah. How's how's lockdown treating you, Anthony? Uh, I suppose it's for me. Um, it's kind of totally different to everybody else and what what everybody else has been doing because everybody else has been locked down where I haven't been. Um, you know, I've got a, a small group of or a small team compared to where I'd normally have a people that have been around me for the last thirteen weeks, and we've been working like we've been working sixteen, seventeen hour days, thirteen weeks straight. So, like it, for me, it was just an extension of of our normal kind of activity. But having to adapt that, so you know, I didn't see a lockdown. I saw, you know, I was more to, more on the streets now than what I've ever been before. Um, it was a case really of of me having to get back out onto the front line. I suppose look, they strapped me to a desk over the last year, which I don't like. It's not something that uh, that that I signed up for really. Um, and I suppose when you you get that title CEO, they start lashing paperwork in front of you and all these policies <laughs> and stuff like that. But yeah, like it's been good to be back out on the vans and back out on the road, and and we got a lot of the case management stuff I would do myself anyway with the with the likes of Geraldine and the guys in the office. But just getting back out there and actually you're, you're meeting the people that you know when we started seven years ago, you're coming across some of the same faces that are still stuck in homelessness. So you know, lockdown for me has been totally different to lockdown for many many others you know many others would, would have been stuck in their houses have been off work have been you know uh, you know babysitting or looking after kids whereas for me it's been i'm out on the streets so it's a kind of it's a, it's a different lockdown for me basically yeah. and, and, t- and, and, and go on grandma go on i was gonna say uh andy take take us back kind of to the start right um in terms of how you you got involved what what activated you into activism and how how like how did it then lead you to be a counselor? I suppose you know I, I get asked that a lot, and it's um, for me. I was always I was always involved in the youth and community. I would have been always involved at a local level in, in regard to um, you know my own area and the local football club and the boxing club. And you know I, there was and you know I trained as a youth worker in the cabin centre, and I grew up in that kind of a background, and I kind of moved into it into different fields. I was in retail management, um, uh, you know, and um, I was in a bar game then, and still am um, now at the moment. So you know we've got different lives really. Uh, but this is something that actually came out of of the bar industry. It was a case of um, you know. Seven years ago, when we founded Inner City Helping Homeless, we made a couple of bowls of soup and some sandwiches up over the pub in a function room. And, and we went out onto the streets and fed someone. And there was more volunteers that night that we went out onto the streets than there actually was homeless people back seven years ago, which is unbelievable to think now. Um, and that kind of led us into uh, this whole, I suppose, we were very 
boys, you know, we were out there, we were letting people know, we, you know, and, and I remember people saying, who were all these hoivies vested? The first time we actually went out onto the streets, I remember somebody commenting and saying they thought it was a census because there was a lot of people in hoivies vests running up and down O'Connell Street, up and down Henry Street, and we were everywhere. Like, we had 120 volunteers now, first night over Lloyd's Bar. Um, and it was literally a case of there were 40-odd homeless people that night. But we come back the next How did night, you get so many volunteers? We just put a call on Facebook, on social media. It was, you know, that was the, Facebook was the in thing seven years ago. And we, you know, we'd said we were, and there was piles and piles of clothes. And, you know, local shops had bought food for us and made, give, given us the makings of the sandwiches and the packaging. And, you know, the women that drank in the bar come in and they, uh, they made the sandwiches and the soup and, and um, the containers all fell through on top of each other, you know, and the soup was all over these big buckets that we had going around. It was mad. It was crazy. But, it, it, yeah, it was, it was one of them that when we actually, look, it was a couple of, it was August 2013. And we finished up uh, the week before Christmas. And I remember Christmas week in 2013, people that were volunteering with us ringing me and asking me, when are we going back out? When are we going back out? Because we were out two nights a week. And, you know, I'm up to my eyes, it's Christmas, and the bar industry, that's probably the biggest, uh, you know, it's the busiest time of year. Yeah. Like, well, okay, we, we can all go on. I was taking everything from the function room to the cellar, back up to the function room when we were going back out. It was just, it was bedlam. It was madness. But we, we, we ended up, we, we, we stuck that we were going to go back out one night a week in January, and it kind of hit, it struck home because at that time somebody had been born to the Phoenix Park in a sleeping bag. And oh, Jesus. It, yeah. it was major news around it. And then, what was really, really proposed, you know, pulling at the heartstrings for me in particular and a lot that you got to know people that you were coming across every night of the week while you were out there. And then all of a sudden when you stopped, those people hadn't got that engagement with us. And when I say us, I'm talking about people that actually showed empathy and people that show compassion, not people that just went out and threw a sleeping bag at them because it's their job or somebody that went out, you know, and done it to get a photograph taken um, because it's Christmas time and everybody is in that kind of mood, you know. There was a real sense of, one, we want to change. It was, you know, why is this person on the streets? And when we start getting all those stories and, and, and putting names to faces and, and people, you know, knowing what we were doing, we start getting challenged because we were highlighting something that had never, ever, homelessness was never highlighted um, seven years ago. You, you never knew about homelessness. Homelessness was a dirty thing. Don't talk about homelessness, all right? Because, you know, when we look at homelessness, um, homelessness is something that, uh, well, you know, it's somebody that has a substance abuse issue or, you know, somebody that has a mental health issue or the guy in the blue sleeping bag that's, um, and they changed the colour of the sleeping bags as well because, you know, make them non-noticeable. Uh, and, you know, people always had this perception of homelessness, but when I start getting people's stories, um, it, 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 it was something that you couldn't let go. It was something that you, you went home every night and you thought about the person that, well, what, why can't this person get a bed? Why are we in a position where, and at that stage back then, you know, we were only dealing with 40 people. Like, you know, we've reached heights in, in the last seven years that we never dreamt we would um, we would reach in terms of the, the level of engagement with people and the amount of people that are sleeping with. And it's, a, it's a, an absolute stain. Um, it's an indictment on us as a society to have all of these people out there that are sleeping rough, um, you know, through. What were the stories you were getting seven years ago? 
you know, I remember one guy that um, when when I went into Store Street, and I'd have been well known in Store Street, I the station, you know, because I'd been involved in the community policing forum, and we used to pop in every, every night. And a guard had actually said to me outside Lloyd's one night, there's three or four people sleeping in the safe. So we, we decided we would um, we would uh, we'd head into uh, Store Street, and I met this guy, and he was wearing a pair of painting overalls, like uh, he was a painter and decorator. And I got his name, and never forget this guy. And his relationship had broken down. He had to leave the uh, house that he was in with his girlfriend. And he was getting up every morning and he was going to work. Um, and he was sleeping in the guard station at night because there was no provision for him. He couldn't afford rent. He couldn't afford to go and um, and get himself. And this is somebody like an average Joe Soap like you or me that, you know, just basically fell on hard times and a, a relationship. And I've always said that you're never two paychecks away from being homeless. That's always something that I'd have in the back of my mind. And I think a lot of people from a working class background or middle class background even would have that, you know, um, in the back of their mind that like, and like even through COVID-19, ban on evictions, all that we've seen. But that story with that chap resonated with me because we were providing him with his lunch for the next day. Our outreach team was meeting him at night time. And, um, you know, he was sleeping one in a guard station for safety and, and, and you know, two because he'd nowhere else to go. And and like that's that's one story. I came across so many other stories in, in the first couple of uh in, in the first year in particular, where we had to go down the line of becoming more official because the more outspoken we were, the more pressure that was being put on us from a political point of view to register as a charity and to ensure we were compliant. And I agree with all that. There should be all of that in place. But, you know, we weren't, we, we weren't a big organisation that were going out there, you know, um, taking in millions of euros and providing all these big, massive services. We were a small group of people that went out to show empathy and compassion that now has grown into that big organisation. But, you know, even like the last couple of weeks through COVID-19, out there listening again, like it resonates so much with me. You know, I hadn't been able over the last year to be out on outreach on the vans at night time the way I used to be. Um, you know, sixteen hour days are long are long days and we've 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 got a massive, massive team of people that put such a big operation in and it's different parts of that operation. But getting back out and meeting a frontline worker a couple of weeks ago, who was working in a in a, a hospital in Dublin and she slept in her car for five nights because the state again had failed to put in place the provisions that she needed in order for her to access a bed. And then when they did finally step in, because all you had to go in and give them a route up the hole and say, here, hang on a second. Like, this is going to be out there. I'm going not hiding the fact that you're failing here. You know, you're going out and saying that there's beds available for everybody. And this, and then you listen to her story and through a family breakdown, you know, and, and, and that was in the newspapers a couple of weeks ago. She, she told her story. Like she was made homeless through a family breakdown. She was working 12-hour shifts. She was on the front line. She was sleeping in her car. And then the guards go and gave her a ticket for parking outside uh, Sundrive Road Guard Station. Like oh, I read it. I read that like, come story. On. So like, when you're listening to this, this, these are just, you know, it, it, there's so many of these stories. So like my... My, my narrative has been the perception. Let's change the perception of homelessness because homelessness is not what it was in the 80s and the 90s. It's not what people believe it to be in terms of the substance abuse issue and people that, you know, and you hear this word junkie and I hate it. We hate the word, you know. That's not homelessness. These are people that need to have dual diagnosis. These are people that need to have, you know, proper supports in terms of whether it be addiction, whether it be mental health, whether it be 
Um, you know, the fact that look, there's people that have lost their jobs and became homeless through the reception through the recession that we saw sleeping in guard stations, that we saw sleeping um, on O'Connell Street and sleeping bags and got up for work the next day. Like the the the, the whole concept of homelessness and, and we tried to through a campaign, the My Name Is campaign, uh, a couple of years ago, put children's faces because children were the new face of homelessness at one stage. Like coming back for because we're over four thousand children are homeless now today. You know, there's ten thousand people that are homeless. But you know, we're, we're seeing an increase in the amount of children, and we did see that. And we tried to hide. And I remember like Brian in the office telling me, oh, "Jesus, like you know, people are not going to be happy. You're going to start putting children's faces out there on lampposts." And 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 um. You know, my call was involved with us and a group of people that came together, like-minded people. And I travelled the whole length and breadth of the country and put these My Name Is campaign posters with children's faces and a black strip over their face or over their eyes. Um, but you could see the child's face. Hashtag My Name Is. And I went the length and breadth of the, the country and it was outrage. How dare you put a child on a poster? Now, we obviously got permission from, you know, before we went and done that. But this whole, you can't... Who's the outrage from? The outrage was from the public because they've never seen anything like this before. You know, public yeah. outcry because how, how dare you put a child on a poster? Why, why can't I? This child is homeless. This child is being failed by the state. This child it has not got the support that they need in order for them to come out of homelessness. And the fact of the matter is that the narrative you're being fed by the big organizations in this city that are being the industry that is homelessness, the narrative you're being fed is not the truth. It's not the narrative um, that I see on the ground every day. And, you know, I'm open for people to challenge that narrative with me and have that conversation around what their perception is. But I know when I had a mother and, our, and a father and two children sleep on the floor in my office um, one night because there was nowhere for that family to go. Um, that's, that's the narrative. That's the narrative I see. That's not the narrative that government and others want to portray. I know that when I had to pick a family, not one, but multiple families up from guard stations at night time because the state had nowhere to provide accommodation. Um, that's the narrative, and that's the truth for me because I've seen that with my own eyes. People tend to believe everything they read, number one, is what I... That's, that's what I think. If, you, if I put something up, um, you know, uh, about Danny now and say, you know, people are going to believe that straight away because it was said, you know. Whereas you need to see to believe. That's, that's, that's my thinking and and people didn't see the child homelessness or, or, or the face of, of, of children and then that started to change and now over the last couple of years what we're seeing is a major major i suppose every month x amount of children are homeless x amount yeah. that came from the fact that we as a small group of people put a movement in place in, in regard to homelessness and, and and really start bringing it to the forefront of like nobody gave a shit about homelessness homelessness who what, what i'm not homeless no that they don't, they don't i remember i remember um years ago uh like as a 18 19 20 year old where you're on a saturday you're going into town and you'd see i would say between Grafton street and going over to henry street you wouldn't you'd see maybe four Five. Mm. Now, now you see homeless people everywhere, like rough sleepers everywhere. 109 people last night, Graham, on the, on the streets, right? So we, we were told it was a 1,000 extra beds put into the system through COVID-19. I challenged the director last week at a council meeting um, on it. For the first couple of weeks of COVID-19, like, there's, there's a certain amount of organisations like ourselves that provided day services. We were 24-7. The likes of 
Aubrey in the lighthouse. You had brother Kevin who was cocooning. He was, you know, wasn't allowed out. And he was on the phone to me telling me, yeah, oh, I'm up here in Mountjoy Prison. I can't get down. And they were doing takeaway meals and he was doing 300 a day. And he's on the phone to me, you know, what's going on on the street? And um, and then you had uh, Louise over in um, and, and we were the core group of organizations that were providing services through the day. And we were told, you know, oh, well, there was, there was showers. There was no showers. You're asked, telling people to wash their hands. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands. If I hear that anymore, these people can't wash at all, you know, because you wouldn't provide a basic shower for them. You know, um, Mendicity spent... So where were, the, what, where were the thousand beds? Where were they? Well, I, I challenged it, and I asked how many beds were closed, and there was up to 600 beds that were closed um, in the first two weeks of COVID-19 because what they call decanting on, on public health advice because there was too many people in the one room. And still up until tonight, up until today, up until last week, you have situations where the chief medical officer's advice has been totally, totally, the two fingers are being stuck up, and you have four people sleeping in a room in these hostels. The private industry outweighs the NGO sector now in regard to hostel and emergency accommodation. Private emergency accommodation is provided by private operators within this city at the moment. And the majority of private emergency accommodation, there's 19 private emergency accommodators in Dublin. There's 15 NGOs providing private emergency accommodation on, on a night-by-night or a rolling bed system. They're paid millions and millions of euros. It was, it was like 171 million euros in 2019 was spent on homeless services in Dublin. Now, that's without <laughs> income from, that's, that's without my expenditure because they don't take me into account because I don't follow their, their guidelines. I, I do things differently. So, um, you know, there's other organizations that are not under their Section 10 remit. So, you know, all this, like, I, I've just stated like, quite clearly, homelessness is an industry. And, and yeah. like where we've went and said, like we traveled to Helsinki and had a look at how they worked their housing force project over there. And, you know, my motto has been for the last number of years, we want to eradicate homelessness. You know, if, if this happens, I gladly move on to something else. So I go back playing football. Um, you know, we have a system in this country that I believe maintains and sustains homelessness. And that has become an industry. It employs thousands of people. It's an income level of millions and millions of euros. Outside of the millions of euros given by government, there's a fundraising um, section of this. There's private donors that come in and donate to all these organizations. We have 9,000 charities in Ireland. 9,000 charities. Like, you know, yeah. okay, we do need charities. We need charities to provide services. But do Not 9,000. We need 9,000. There, I don't think. Is, is there... I, I don't know, it could be just I'm picking up maybe a little bit on what you're saying, I could be picking it up wrong in fairness, but is there like a bit of friction then between kind of some of the, 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 the charities um, like the ones that you mentioned there, like obviously yourselves, and you mentioned Father Kevin and a few others there, is there friction between kind of those charities and then the kind of I'm going to say marquee charities, the household name charities, that kind of... There's duplication, there's duplication of service. Uh, and, and what we need to do is identify that duplication of service and find out where we're spending money in areas that we don't need to be spending money. Brother Kevin's is a vital, it's, it's, it's a vital resource that we need. Like through COVID-19, he was serving seven, 800 meals a day. Mm. The Lighthouse was a vital resource, serving 350. Um, uh, we were doing 1,200 meals a day from inner city helping homeless um, through COVID-19. You know, so these these are vital resources. Then we had state organisations, state paid organisations that were leaving the likes of a frontline care worker in our car and not arriving out to do a case assessment. In order for you to get a bed in this city, you have to sleep rough. All right. 
you can't just present tomorrow as homeless and come into Park H3, into Central Placement Services, and present as homeless. They tell you, you were instructed to sleep rough, to go out and sleep on the street, and they have to come and visit you three times on the street in a location in order for them to identify you as being homeless. So the avenue and the gateway to gain accommodation or emergency accommodation in this city or in this country is um, rough sleeping. You have to sleep rough before you will be provided with services. That's totally, totally wrong. Or you look at Helsinki. We traveled there. Myself, the, uh, the guys, we, we, we took some of the guys from, if you remember, the Apollo House um, Initiative. And we kind of tried to get all these like-minded people together um, give back ourselves, give back, and um, Google were at the uh, were at the putting some uh, you know funding in place for us to go and have a look at what we deem might be the change. And we implement what they call a housing force model in Helsinki. So our European counterparts, and Helsinki has eradicated homelessness. I couldn't believe it. I came out of a hotel at four o'clock in the morning, and I said to the lads, Dean, Scully, and um, and Anne, who was with me, this and Anne, Anne works in the office here, and Anne is real. Oh no, they wouldn't put you into a place like that. I don't believe that like we're in this city and there's no and like for three days they brought us to where these units where people are on different programs and they're and I absolutely said if we can just copy and paste this model here, like this can be done. This is not we're spending millions and we're not getting the results that they got. And I actually went to a taxi outside a hotel and asked him to drive me to the next town because I said these are at the dumping us here, you know, and, and just my brain, the way it operates, right? And I went to the next, and I said to the taxi driver, will you wait now and drop us back? And he thought I was mad, like, what's going on here? Same thing. No people, you couldn't find anybody. Now, there's not a town. So what do they do? Like, what do they do then? And where, where, where the homeless stories in Helsinki of the rough sleepers and stuff, are they the same stories, mm. I wonder, that we have with our people? They've got the same issues. They've got the same issues in regard to, like, you know, there's multiple streams that lead to homelessness. So, like, the recession led to homelessness, so right? people being evicted, landlords, ban on evictions. You know, that that's now the ban on evictions has seen the number of homeless people over the last two months reduce. We haven't seen as many come into the system over the last two months purely because there's a ban on evictions. You know, the banks uh, uh, lead to homelessness, repossession of homes um, through mortgages that led to homelessness. So, also, we've got those core issues in regard to mental health, in regard to substance misuse, and, and, and so forth. They tackle that as a combined. They tackle that as one, you know. But the, the key is that each individual case that presents is, is, is dealt with on its own merit, where what we have is a one-tier system here where it's, you know, everybody's swept with the one brush. It's all the sheep and all the cattle in the back of the van um, together, and there's no kind of in-depth management of, you know. Like, we've, I've seen people that have come out of absolutely disgraceful, come out of rehabilitation programs where they've been in rehabilitation for six months, um, and come out and they've been put back into homeless service units where there's where, where there's multiple drug use. We've just funded somebody here to go and spend six months in rehab, whereas that doesn't happen in Helsinki. The individual wraparound supports are given to the individual's needs, all right, and it's managed in a case management perspective a hell of a lot better than the case management that that we provide here. What we do is we just throw everybody into accommodation and hope for the best. And, and oh, after Jesus. that, you know, and the wraparound supports it in terms of the mental health and substance misuse and, you know, simple things that, <laughs> that, that we can physically uh, engage with, with, with clients um, to bring them through to their side. We don't do at the same level as our European counterparts. Who did you bring your findings back to from Finland? 
So we brought them back to the minister, um, and obviously, you know, I was meeting with Owen Murphy um, for, for, you know, Owen Murphy I'd met with, uh, a couple of times. Obviously, I'd been very critical. I'd met every housing minister. for I've met the last four housing ministers consecutively. Um, and, you know, I remember meeting Simon Coveney in um, the Gresham Hotel and, and having a, an in-depth, and gave him a 10-point plan a number of years ago in regard to what we believed was the changes that needed to be made. Sorry, Andy, was that meeting as a result of the Apollo uh, House? No, it was before. Uh, it was before oh. Coveney was actually met. I actually walked into Apollo House and walked out of it on, on the same night um, because I just I, I, I couldn't stand over, um, I suppose. And, and I got on with the guys like me and Glenn Hansard are very, very good friends. He's done his concerts last two years for Inner City Helping Homeless. Obviously, he was involved. Brendan Ogle, we, I would consider the guys that actually done that um, personal friends now. Like we, We've grown to, I suppose, communicating. Um, but I suppose I, I couldn't stand over the client management and what was going on in there that, you know, there was health safety issues and there was risk assessments that weren't being done. And I couldn't put my hand up honestly and say that, you know, if somebody had died in there, that that was my, you know, and I understand why it was done, how it was done. But, you know, there was recommendations given that weren't followed. And again, like we're all great mates now, you know, me, Dean, Glenn, uh, Brendan Ogle and, and whatever. Um, but they continued on, and I think that that really, really did whatever about me kicking and screaming for the three years before that, or the four years before that maybe. Um, they brought it to a pinnacle. It was, it was yeah. here, and it was worldwide, and it was you know, and then people start. But the lawyers that were told, the lawyers that were told, you know, and and, and Coveney told lawyers, Pat Doyle told lawyers, um, you know, there, there was there was people told that that they they would be taken from that um that you um you know if they all left the building and they would all get accommodation from um Apollo House they didn't there was a hotel booked on Pear Street um and it was paid for privately um, by an individual and uh, everybody was lumped into that hotel on the closure of Apollo House. Um, and, you know, the wraparound supports that were supposed to be put in place for the individuals wasn't done. Coveney told Lois. Coveney told Lois in 2017 when he said that he was going to end um, the hotel usage for families and children that were in hotels. You know, so, so when you when you met Coveney before Apollo House and mm-hmm. you gave the 10 point step, uh, step by step way to eradicate homelessness, mm-hmm. what were... What were the ten steps per se, and what what was his reaction? What was the what was the meeting like? Was it positive or? Well, I remember that his now the now national director of housing forces called Bob Jordan, and Bob Jordan was uh, Simon Coveney's right hand man when he was the minister. Now he's over in in, in housing force, which to me is, you know, you've a, you a whole different podcast on that to be honest with you. But I remember Bob standing right. in in, uh, in the Gresham with me. I'm waiting on the minister to arrive. And I had um I, I had a team from my office with me and um I went in very official, you know, uh, in, in regard to what way we were we were tackling approaching and um and, and the minister was late and I had said, Well, you know, I'm not gonna hang around and I'm not gonna hang around much longer for the minister, you know, I was supposed to be here a half an hour ago, you know, sorry. I know you'd be witchy, witchy, you're right, and he sat down and I gave him the ten point plan and the ten point plan basically um, you know, Simple things like eradicate the one-night-only beds, whereas you ring in the free phone at 4.30 and you get assigned a bed if there's one available that evening and you can go into that facility. If there's not a bed available at that time, you don't get to call back till 11 o'clock at night to actually access a bed. So we've, you know, a couple of hundred people every night waiting till 11 o'clock walking around the streets trying to either access a phone and we've no phones on the street because, you know, Aircom start removing all the public pay phones. You might not have access to a charger to charge your uh, to charge your phone. So 
you know, what we said was everybody that enters homeless is one of the points was everyone that enters homelessness should be given a rollover bed for a minimum of three, if not six months, which then gives stability around um, ensuring that you can put the wraparound support services in place um, for that individual and cater to that individual needs and the individuals within that plan or that uh, 10 point plan all needed own door, own key access to a room. Even if it was a facility where they had to share, you know, a toilet, but they all had their own room that you can go and you lock, you close your door. So that gives that bit of structure and a bit of responsibility around. You have to maintain your room and ensure that, you know, and, and simple things that, that put structure, in, that I believe put structure in place. Um, so that was one of the points. Now, they've started to do that. Now, that was, what, four years ago. They've started to do that through COVID-19 and not give them their own room or own room door, but put everybody on rolling beds. This could have been done four years ago. So like people waiting around till 11 o'clock at night. And then at 11 o'clock at night, if you don't get a bed at 11 o'clock at night, you're being told to go to Harcourt Street or come to Amy Street and get a sleeping bag. And you're, you're sleeping rough. That's basically it. There's not. So there's been absolutely hundreds of thousands of times that we've experienced people that at 11 o'clock at night would be told that they have to go and get a sleeping bag. And that's why our teams don't go out at 11 o'clock at night on the streets. Sorry, on the streets, because they only engage with people that are basically, they've nowhere else to go. There's, there's no, you know, there's no other plan in place for that person. Like, it, one of the, one of the, the, the uh, we, we asked for the closure of Merchant's Key. They put 75 people on ground mats on the floor in Merchant's Key for the last four years. Like a yoga mat, a mat that we do yoga on, I gave them a blanket. And no more than a meter apart on the floor, 25 on that floor, 25 on the next floor, and 25 on the right? Just to say that they were doing so. It was called the Night Cafe. Like, wait for me, will you? The Night Cafe. What's, what's Night Cafe about this? Like, you know, having to sleep on the floor beside somebody and having no privacy, you know, whatsoever. Um, does you know, does Owen Murphy go and visit these places and think it's uh, acceptable? That's the that's the thing. Like if you if you ask, does Owen Murphy go and view these places? Owen Murphy goes and view these places with a camera crew behind him, all right. And 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 the, and the, the the facilities are given ample notice that he's on the way. And you better I remember a story in regard to a unit where it was opened as a family hub, and we started up this campaign um, saying uh, hope hope is not a home. You know, um, and, and a hub is not a home. So you're lumping everybody into these kind of old, if you're, what, what, what would we call it? The Magdalen Laundry, the, the, the state-of-the-art Magdalen Laundry. Right? That, that's what this is. We're putting all these people into what was deemed years ago, the Magdalen Laundries. Families into, uh, into units that, like, buying hotels, taking leases on hotels, like one on O'Connell Street, for instance, that we went in and closed down. We had to go in and pretend to be a, a, a lift engineer in this hotel just to get access to it because they wouldn't give me access. And I had reports that this hotel was under construction. It wasn't being used for homeless service families, for families within service. But then I was at to get a number of clients and um, mothers that came to me and said, no, I was put in here last night. I was put into this hotel last night. I went in and the pictures are still stories online now if you were to Google the name of the hotel. Uh, and I took pictures of the of the doors locked with steel chains, the fire exits that push out locked with steel chains, the alarm panels blaring red on silence, right? And um, hallways, holes in the walls, holes in the ceilings. You want to see this place? This place was like it wasn't even a construction site, right? It was more or less a derelict building that they 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 went into. There was 
three men in a uh, in a front room looking out onto O'Connell Street um, that were doing security in this place at night time. And these girls were being told to go in there at seven and eight o'clock at night with their kids. They were put into a room, you know, that some of the rooms hadn't got electricity to charge phones. Some of the rooms hadn't got running water. Like this stuff is all there. If you go back and look at it. I left, rang the fire officer and got the fire officer out to do an inspection on it. And that was closed. But then we had to realize um, that Dublin Fire Brigade are ran by Dublin City Council. Dublin Region Homeless Executive is ran by Dublin City Council. So they didn't want the conflicting report. They never released the fire report, you know, to say that they closed the building. They buried the fire report. But the newspapers went out and re- put, like even the pictures that we had released of, of the stardust stuff all over, you know, locked with chains. There's family sleeping in this building. Like that's the level of incompetence that you're dealing with in home. And I hate to sound negative all the time. I always say, if you're going to come out, you're going to have a problem. Let's have a solution for that problem. I tell my team here, don't come to me with a problem. Come to me with a solution. And we've always tried to give solutions like the 10-point plan in every kind of, you know, every time we went with something that, okay, well, if, you know, A and B is not working, let's try C and D. And the likes of the rollover beds that were given to COVID, this was just stuff that was going in one ear and out the other ear. What they were doing was meeting with me to try and keep me quiet. You know, like if we meet yeah. keeping quiet for three months, we tell them we're going to put this in place, we're going to put that in place. And it's been the same with Owen Murphy. You know, I actually, I actually, Owen Murphy came out on, on outreach with myself and Brian one night and we shadowed an outreach team. And I remember him turning around and saying to me, and I, I'd be very blunt and out straight and I think you probably noticed that by now. And, uh, he said to me, that lad is not homeless. And I said to him, who do you think you are to tell me that lad is not homeless? Many homeless people have you actually missed in your job, you know, as, as minister for housing. And, you know, he's going around the bend with me about, yeah, well, you know, he's still visit these services and this. Stuff. This fella had been, had, had left state care, right? He was 19 years of age. He was at the GPO. Do you know what he was doing at the GPO? We were late because the minister was late. Right, to meet was that night and I held the, the outreach team back and this fella had left the Phoenix Park where he slept in a tent had been released from state care at 18 had no follow on support services right after that just let out into the big boy world at 18 years of age had grew up in care sleeping in a tent in the Phoenix Park do you know why the minister deemed that he wasn't homeless because he dressed fresh because he had a nice pair of white socks and he had a nice tracksuit on. The young so, so that that to me suggests you said earlier on about a kind of taboo for homeless people, and mm. I I had it in my head to ask you, do you think that's a it's it's a classism thing? And oh. I think it is, and I think that proves it because the likes now this is probably going to be an anti anti Fianagail rant, but the likes of of Murphy and Calvary and Varadkar. They, they, they've never been in the position and they've never, they're, they're never going to be in the position. They've just been privileged. So when they see someone, it's like this as well, um, Anthony. I was, um, I, I got two two bags of clothes and runners together for, uh, this past weekend for your charity. Mm. And uh, I'm a wheelchair user, so none mm. of my runners are destroyed. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I was only saying to me mate there, uh, who's a guard, and I says, uh, it's mad. I gave in our in his yeah in our city helping homeless two pairs of runners, Adidas and Air, Nike Air Max. And sure, geez, they're brand new. And I recall years ago going in town into town with friends, and I remember friends commenting like 18, 19, 
uh, at the odd homeless person saying, look, they're, they're hardly homeless with the brand new pair of Air Max. But there's me at the weekend giving out a pair of runners that I just don't wear anymore that I've had for years because they're spotless because I don't fucking yeah. well, You know that, that right? It's something that, that we laugh at because like, we're very limited here in regard to our funding and like we've been very, very lucky in regard to being able to, uh, to provide the level of service that we do um, particularly the fact that we, we haven't taken any state funding in seven years. So, you know, for us to be able to put in place the massive, massive operation that we put in place, um, it's all to do with, with our corporate social responsibility program. And our fundraising team are massive and the general public are, are great in regard to, you know, and like, this gets to this, um, when you're talking about your spotless clean pair of runners, when the lads come looking for the hygiene packs, we do a hygiene pack, right? And the hygiene pack will consist of for a male, pair of boxers, uh, a pair of socks, toothbrush, toothpaste, small shampoo, all your necessities in a hygiene pack, right? So one, the hygiene pack will be given back to you if there's not a white pair of socks in it, right? <laughs> the black, give the black, give them back, right? That's what they do. They hand you black, a black pair of socks, they hand you back, right? Or if instead, like, so Anne would be going up and I'd say they look at Anne and Penny's and they say to her, what's this hell one coming in here doing? Like, Anne is great. She's unbelievable. Um, like she, Anne is one of the, the rocks here, you know. We've got a left hand, or two left hands and two right hands here. And without them, this just doesn't function. It doesn't operate, you know, because it's, it's, it's a 24-7 gig. And Anne goes and buys the underwear, buys the socks, right? So, you know, oh no, I have to get white socks, I have to get white socks. And obviously that all comes at a cost. And if you're in a situation where you're sleeping rough, a pair of, you know, and fresh pair of socks, fresh pair of underwear on you, being able to access a shower, simple things that we all take for granted, you know, um, are things that mean a hell of a lot to the like if you hand them a pair of briefs rather than a pair of boxers they hand them back to you know we don't want them we don't we'd rather have the the pair of boxers so like we'd be thinking of like where normally people would turn around and say geez you think you'd be happy with what you're given but now like the guys go to that extra length to make sure that everybody is comfortable on what they're getting but you will be surprised at how uh you will be surprised at, at, i suppose the people that come to us and the people that we engage with, you know, again, you know, this whole perception of, of a homeless person is just wrong, you know. Yeah. And he, he well, made that it's, perception. It's wrong that when you have, a, you, the, you have the Minister for Housing make an assumption that this person is, like, he, he made that comment based mm-hmm. on, he didn't make it based on a criteria, he based it on his opinion. Yeah, and then, like, that young lad had actually came to the GPO from the Phoenix Park in order to get food supplies for the night. And he was walking back to the Phoenix Park, uh, you know, with his supplies that the outreach team were at the meeting with. And night like tonight, like there's a list now, there's, we, we've moved our, like we've obviously we've had to adapt through COVID-19 and, and, and changed how we, we, you know, we've extended services, but we've had to do it in a different way. So like, you know, we had to go out and buy a new van and put three vans on the road and have mobile outreach as our main um, outreach support rather than the walking teams that would normally be seen by people, the general public would see the guys out there at night time, you know, and people that would be standing outside. Like, I'd be getting pictures at night time while I'm at home in bed. Like, my mates would be up maybe in Camden Street having a beer and he sends you a picture. There's your team, Anto, gone down the road, you know. Everybody knows the lads out there every night walking through Temple Bar. All the security know them, the cops know them. And we've had to change that. We've had to pull them. Like with 300 not volunteers, and we had to pull all those people back in and then just put two people out, six people a night out on the vans, where there would have been 15 to 20 people out providing that service. 
So although we reduced the number of people, we increased the level of supports that we had. And the lads that are out there at night time that we're going out and dealing with are waiting on. They will have a list of contact numbers going out tonight. They will ring Joe on the way out to X. They will ring Barry on the way out to Y. We're on the way out. Do you need anything? And these are people, many of them, that won't access the hostel system because of the systemic failures within that system. Like your people that won't go into hostels because, one, they're afraid they're going to be robbed. Two, they've already come through a drug rehabilitation program or um, or whatever program, and they go in and there's people in, in that that are, are blatantly using substance. And again, you know, that all needs to be challenged and, and, and dealt with in a, a specific manner. But why should somebody, you know, that why should someone be forced to sleep rough because we can't manage the systems that we put in place correctly, all right? And like I said to you earlier on, we are now forcing people to sleep rough before we even offer them that avenue of accommodation or before we offer them um, that support. And, and like for me, that's wrong. We need to change the whole narrative in, in what way we deal. with homeless. How can you change it when you've had conversations with housing ministers that... Kick them out. We get rid of them. Yeah. And we say to them, no, we're not putting up with this anymore. The same officials that are in the department and in the Dublin... The Dublin Region Homeless Executive is dysfunct. It's dysfunct. It's been dysfunct since Carl Morgan was up there. He went and got his doctorate, took a six-month leave and got a doctorate and went to work for the HSE while he was supposed to be the director of homeless services. He was off studying in college and his job wasn't being done up in DCC. We have another director up there now who absolutely, you know, is not fit for purpose in my opinion. And I have no problem saying that. I've said this at council. Sorry, but at the end of the day, the level of service that we're paying for, the state, the taxpayer is paying for, is not providing the service that's needed for the individuals that are there. So what we need to do is turn that on its head, turn it upside down, and look at what way we can reshape that. And the only way that we can reshape it is to copy the models. Our outputs in regard to housing force that all of the other, um, all of our counterparts, European counterparts are using, are of the lower percent bracket. Our outputs are low. I think we've 324 people have went through the housing force program since its inception in 2007, DNC. And it's cost millions and millions of euros to uh, to run this program. It's all about money, money, money. We keep throwing money into a black hole, yet we don't seem to be fixing any problem. And even at that, we've depended on the private market, the private emergency accommodation providers, the private landlords to fix what's a social problem. This is a social problem, all right? And until we all get our heads around that, that it's not going to be fixable, by a profit-driven industry, you know, it's never going to work. Never going to work. Do you feel that the the cause and the campaign, so to speak, because it seems like it's an ongoing campaign, do you see it? Do you think that that campaign, because I feel uh, certainly at this the, this most recent general election, uh, people were, were voting for change and they were voting to eradicate homelessness and people were, have no experience of homelessness. They, didn't, they don't have any family uh, that were homeless, but they all still wanted to vote for change. Do you feel now with COVID uh, giving the government a bit of a, a boost, do you think that will fall to the back burner now? Because I have yeah. seen a couple of people prior to it saying who they voted. They were very open uh, mm. on social media saying who they voted for. They voted left for the first time. They changed. Uh, and then I've seen the same people in the middle of COVID 
saying Jesus, uh, Leo, si the two Simons, they've all done mm. a great job. If the general election was tomorrow, I'd, I'd probably change my mind and vote for them again. So I think that's a bit of a stumbling block well, in this. Do you know what I found, I found very difficult through COVID nineteen? All right, is that the fact that um, you know, let, let's talk, let's talk about the far right, and you know, as soon as you contradicted something through, right, this absolute bull of let's don the green jersey and everything is okay and everything is perfect i'm sorry it's not and i tell you it's not because i was out there and i seen that it wasn't my team were out there and my team saw that it wasn't the you know and, and there's, there's a story that went out um today through the pain it's called and um, it's on social media and one of my key per personnel here geraldine gives her story of how she um managed through covid19 and how she you know she like she worked every day with me an unbelievable person and she gave a different aspect to say, say me kind of politicizing stuff. Um, you know, it was a real from the heart. This is what what happened for me through COVID nineteen and her story. And I think that I felt that when I criticized something through COVID nineteen, that you got you were attacked. You know, you had a social media attack when you criticized something. And the reason why you were attacked um, is because. Again, the narrative was that everything was okay, but it wasn't okay. You know, we weren't seeing people coming in off the street that wanted beds. We didn't decant units in terms of ensuring that people got their own. We went completely against the chief medical officer's advice in terms of ensuring everybody had their own bed and their own um, their own access to a room and stuff like that. We had hostel units that had 40, 50, 60 people in them. You know, that's not um, that's not right. That's not correct. But when you went out and you, when I was highlighting some of this, you know, we, I, I always felt through COVID-19 that there was that kind of, you know, outcry against the fact that I'm, and I'm telling things as I see it, you know, we're not making this up as we go along, you know, and it's a case of the operation that we put in place didn't, like, like for, there was hostel units that were supposed to be providing three meals a day that were given toast and tea for breakfast, all right? They weren't allowing people to stay there all day when there was a lockdown. And then that managed to be put in place. But there was one hostel that continued that every night for seven nights, they put on a pot of tomato soup and two slices of bread at seven o'clock in the evening. That was a substantial meal. I put a photograph up of a private caterer that delivered meals after we highlighted this, that delivered meals to another hostel unit. You want to see what was in that meal, you know? wasn't a substantial meal or a nutritionist meal in any way, shape or form. And when you were highlighting all this, it was like as if, well, you know, you shouldn't be saying anything. How dare you go and contradict? Like, you look at what's being put in place. One of the other things I had asked, and I, I emailed the HSC on it and asked for the epidemiology in regard to homeless services. I heard, uh, I, I heard Dr. Jack Lambert come out and say that there was a big cluster of, of um, cases within the homeless, uh, within the homeless sector. There was a big cluster of cases within the Roma community, um, and there was a big cluster of cases within a certain area of the north inner city. So, right, I, I've got remit there all over. All right? First of all, you're talking about my electoral area. Second of all, you're talking about the people that I'm working directly with. So we went and kind of investigated what Jack Lambert, who was the uh, chief uh, infectious control uh, doctor in, he's a presser in the matter. And he was on um, national television saying this. And, you know, when I asked the question, we got a statement from the council saying that the number of people that uh, within homeless services that were uh, number of people within homeless services um, that have contracted COVID-19 is very low and we've had zero deaths. That was the response, right? So we went and said, well, how many people have we tested within homeless services? 
Can you tell me how many people have been? We've got families that are sharing B&Bs and Garner Street that are sharing toilets, that are sharing kitchens, um, children that are sharing the, the, the same uh, living facilities. So you can go to your room, but you've got the same kind of communal areas that you're sharing within. The, so all of these... Um, all of these families should have got the opportunity to uh, should have got the opportunity to to be tested. They didn't, so you can't come and say that you know with a very low number of cases, but you can't identify many people were actually tested through. So what um, were they saying? What, what were they? What were they doing there? Then? Well, we don't believe the tests were being carried out. Number one, you know, they couldn't. They still can't identify. I've already went back and asked the many the, the homeless the homeless um, hub that's being put into the matter. Um, that's that that was put up there a couple of weeks ago, uh, and only put in a couple of weeks ago has been lying empty. And I'm not one of these conspiracy theorists either. We got it. We had a pandemic. We had to react. But there were certain sections of society that didn't get the same reaction as other sections of society, in my opinion. And the homeless section of society didn't get the reaction that it needed. Anybody that shared a room with anybody else within homeless services should have been offered a test in regard to COVID-19. Um, anybody that was living in a, a communal living facility should have been offered a test in regard to COVID-19. And they haven't been able to say that they've done that. Yet they come out with this big statement to say that the number of people within the homeless, within the homeless uh, you know, uh, sector is, that have contracted the disease is very low. Well, how do you know if you haven't tested people within the sector? You know? so, mm. But then when you go out and you talk about this, there's the whole narrative that you're being negative all the time. I'm not being negative. I don't believe I'm being negative all the time. I believe that we're trying to get facts. We're trying to be truthful. We're trying to highlight, you know, we're trying to highlight the wrongs, you know. Like, these are not big. These these are not things that are hard to put in place in terms of ensuring that we're giving people their basic human rights. Like, we look at, like, you know, we, we, we have a woman today, for instance, um, who was physically impaired, or sorry, she's um, she visually impaired, all right? And, and I spoke to her today. This woman has been in homeless services for years. They closed her bed um, the other night. And the reason why they closed her bed is because she chose. Now, she chose to sleep rough. She chose to sleep rough because she couldn't put up with what was going on in the hostel that she had been assigned by the DRHG. So she felt that she was safer, a visually impaired woman on the streets, than she was in that hostel facility. All right. They then offered her another hostel, and the other hostel um, wasn't suited to her impairment. You know, it was a situation where she couldn't, um, you know, it, 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 whether it was stairs or access or whatever. She said she knew the hostel, she'd been there before. She said, I can't access that. You know, it's not safe for me to be in that unit. But imagine somebody feeling safer on the streets than they do in a hostel environment. That's wrong. And we as a society need to step up. As I said, seven years ago, this was something that was a dirty topic. Don't talk about it. homelessness. We haven't got a homeless problem. We do. We have a major problem. And we're going to see more of this. We're going to see a hell of a lot more of it. Once the ban on it, like as I said, you know, we look at the figures month on month. The last two months, the figures have went down. They went down because there's a ban on, on evictions. Soon as that ban is lifted, we're going to see an absolute avalanche of people that are going to require access to service. And we're not ready for it. We're certainly well, not ready for it. What what can the average punter like? What can say the likes of myself and Mero do to 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 try and help or to try and support the the work of you know charities like Inner City Helping Homeless? I've looked at the program for government, and I don't think it's ambitious enough. Number one, in terms of how they 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 say they're going to deal with anything that's in it is a copy and paste from Rebuild Ireland, and um, you know already promises that were already made. There's nothing new, um, within that. 
But what we need to have is we need to have a public conversation. We need to have a conversation as a society. We need to talk more about what's actually wrong here. You know, why should we, you know, as a country of, of many, many means, you know, we're, we're, we're you know, we're, we're a rich country. We shouldn't have poverty. We shouldn't have people sleeping rough. We should. And let's be honest, there's a certain percentage of people that have got, um, They've a certain level of issues that maybe they don't want to access homeless services, and we need to make sure they get extra wraparound services. Um, you know, mm. but from the general public's point of view, we need to keep it on the agenda. We need to keep. I, I think it's something that's really, really going to be wiped off the agenda in the coming uh, weeks. Uh, and with, with this government that are coming in, um, you know, that, that are coming into power, that that it's something that's going to be put on a back burner. That we're going to be talking about um, wind turbines and. And bicycles and, and getting rid of cars, you know, but we're going to forget about the individuals and, and our brothers and sisters that need our help that are out there sleeping on, on streets that shouldn't be. And the failure of the state to ensure, like when we look at what at the programme for government, you know, they vaguely talk about the right. They don't even talk about the right to housing. They talk about ha- having a referendum on housing. They don't say what the referendum will be, you know. Yeah. So that's all stuff that needs to be out there in that public domain. That conversation had, you know, consistently. Isn't isn't it fucking mad that you have to have a referendum on housing with possibly the question being, does every citizen deserve a right to have a house, like, to have a home? Like, like, I mean, come on the fuck, like. Like, there's, there's no, there's no, like, they, they talk about affordable housing within the program for government, but what is affordable housing? You know, nobody's identified what affordable housing, we've spoken about, you know, it's pain in the arse talking about affordable housing, but nobody actually wanting to identify what is affordable housing. Like, all Murphy thinks affordable housing is a, a, a gap for 320,000 euros, 340,000 euros. All right. Sorry, but that's not within my remit. I don't know whether it's within your remit, and I don't no. think it's in. It's within the remit of half the people that I grew up with, half the people that I hung around with, half the people that I went to school with, half the people I went to college with, half the people I worked with. That's not within. That's not affordable Three, to me. Three hundred and sorry, sorry, I was going to say three hundred twenty thousand is what well, it's over six and a half times the average industrial wage. Which means yeah. if you even want Crazy. to consider buying it you have to be buying with somebody else. Yeah. So there's no access to home ownership should you want to be a single person who wants security and wants to have their own house. And for yeah. any government or any politician to kind of genuinely sit there and go, yeah, that's yeah, 320,000. Yeah, what's, what's wrong with that? It's fucking laughable. It's always, that's fine if you're on 90 grand a year, you know, before you claim an expense. Well, you know, I, 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 I certainly know the people from... My background and people that I grew up with, and people from um, you know my walk of life, uh, it wouldn't that wouldn't be within their reach, and it wouldn't be in the reach of many many others um, within society. It's not in the reach of a hell of a lot of people. So, but the fact that they talk about it yet don't yet they've no plan, they don't know, they've never, they haven't identified what um, affordable housing is going to be. You know, they're still yeah. like, so. What's the point in putting it in there if you don't even know what you're talking about? You know, there's just no. Well, he does. He's talking three hundred twenty grand. You know, but again, I think you're right and you're correct. Why, you know, we're having this conversation about having a referendum on whether people should have the right to a home. Everybody should have the right to a home. You know, that should be the most basic of requirements. And it's a a stupid question to ask. I mean, come on, like it's you're going to spend you're going to spend millions on putting. Uh, literature together uh, on a referendum. And report after report after report. Merge, you know, another, another issue really is that 
when we talk about you know having a referendum on it and, and you know um, whether the right to a home should be enshrined into the constitution, you know we maybe when, when we look at homelessness, homelessness doesn't affect everybody. So let's compare homelessness to the water meter protest, right? There was uproar over water meters. There was slaughter. There was people out in every avenue, in every uh, state, in every working class estate, middle class estate. Um, and people marched for water meters, right? Because of the fact that that affected every single person in our society. Everyone. It, you know, everyone was going to get a bill in their door for water, right? The problem with homelessness is not everybody is homeless. And not everybody is going to get a bill in their door for homelessness, all right? But what people don't realize is that we are paying for homelessness through our teeth, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we shouldn't be paying in Dublin alone 171 million uh, last year. You know, that's without, the, that's without all of the other kind of counties and whatever other organizations paid money into it's homelessness. It's like direct provision, isn't it? Well, that's a, and that's another industry. That's another industry. Oh, Jesus. And, and some of those private emergency accommodators that we spoke about earlier on are providing private emergency accommodation in Dublin are the providers that are providing direct provision services as well. You know, that's that. And, and like they talk about ending direct provision in the lifetime of government. Um, you know, I can't see that happening at all. There's been no attempt to, if, if anything, um, it, it's, it's absolutely appalling what, what the state have put people through that have come into this country and people that have, you know, that, that are coming from backgrounds that are educated, people that have, um, um, you know, they, they've got something to offer society. They've got something to give. I, I believe everybody has something to offer society. But what we've done is we've locked these people up, you know, that could benefit, you know, that could engage with our society, that could that, that could benefit us as a whole, as an island. And, you know, we've, we've locked them up. We've left them there. We've given them 38 quid a week to uh, feed themselves on. And I remember uh, two weeks ago, he came out with something, Leo, in regard to, you know, we feed them and we did. And his, his statement was appalling. Appalling. Oh, I remember yeah. tweeting yeah. something after it. And I was saying to myself, like, this fella thinks that, you know, uh, these people should be grateful for what he, that, that's not, like, what you've done people, here. Is people always crazy. say there, Anthony, though, like, and look, I've got, I've got friends that would probably say that they need to educate themselves on direct provision, okay? Um, and their opinion probably at the moment would be, what else is there? What else can we do for them? Like, uh, my opinion is that Varadkar and the rest treat it as a deterrent for people, you know, in these countries. I know someone who was in receipt of direct provision and his story is harrowing. So, like, we I mean... We really integrate these people into society. That's what we do, all right? Yeah. Integration into a civil society, that's what that's what needs to happen, you know? And into into a society where they can, where people can contribute. Like, we, like you know, we, we, we've got people there that, that have expertise in different areas um, that, are, that are being locked up in, the, in, in Butlins, you know, and left there. That's absolutely... That's not right. That's not... That's not it's inhumane in my opinion, you know, that, and, and for people, we saw the news reports through COVID-19 where people were behind locked gates with, with, uh, with placards asking to be let out of a hotel because they were told they couldn't leave and they were on lockdown and, you know, um, the chances that they could be deported um, if they went against the rules. And then when you see some of the literature that's coming through Massey and stuff like that are doing amazing, amazing work, um, you know, advocating on behalf of, of, uh, of homeless people, or sorry, of, of people that are in direct provision. When you see some of the literature of some of the, the rules around these, um, these, these units, so I'm like, I'm sorry, but, you know, there's more freedom up Mount Joy than there is in some of these hotels that are being ran by private operators to provide 
direct provision and the money that's being spent on that then again and you add that into the money that's being spent on homeless services we would spend a hell of a lot less money by integrating these people into society you know and, and, and actually and we would reap and sow the benefits of integrating these people into society but you know what that's not their narrative. That's not what they want. You know, they like that's they've locked people up. If you go up to Mount Joy, you'll get three square meals a day, you get Sky Sports and you can play a game of snooker. All right. You're in a hotel down in Leitrim that's that's being that's providing direct provision. You're locked in a room of four and five other people and you don't get three square meals a day and you don't get Sky and you don't get uh, a game of snooker. You know, yeah. that doesn't add up. And I'm I'm conscious of time, man. You've been, yeah. you've been brilliant to give us so much time. But before oh, we let you go, then yeah, <laughs> that's the problem. Before, before we let you go, man, as well as if, if that's you're very of, passionate on it, Anthony. Thanks yeah, so much. Ab- ab- absolutely, man. Yeah, like thanks for everything you do. Like, true. um, it, what like if, if if people listening were to take one thing away from this, or if you were to kind of have just one message for them around the 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 kind of social injustice of homelessness and and all the other things, what would you want them to take away like i think one that we need to be shown we need to look at a homelessness we need to direct away from that narrative that's always been there in regard to homeless individuals and the discussion that we had around you know a person that is homeless it's not always what people believe or what people see because they've seen if you know something posted on facebook or a story, you know someone in that blue sleeping bag we've got a multitude of people different people from different you know, areas in society that have become homeless over the last number of years. As I said earlier, whether it be through the recession, whether it be through, um, you know, and, and any, any avenue that leads to it. I think we need to be more caring as a society in regard to what way we, we look at homelessness and what way we, we try and change our own kind of housing, our, our, our methodology around how we house people. You know, the right to housing should be enshrined. I think it's something that everybody needs to jump on now. There's that, that little warden that they put into the programme. It's something that I'm going to be campaigning very, very heavily on over the next day, over the next while. Um, you know, we're, we're going to come out with a, with a big, strong campaign in terms of actually keeping them to that right to housing. I think that that's the most basic human. It should be one of the most basic human rights. It's not. But I, I think that, you know, we need we need to we need to hold people to account as well. You know, there's a lot going on out there in our society that you know we talk about social injustices and stuff like that. You know, and, and we need to be kinder to, to people. We need to be kinder to people in, in general. You know, everybody seems to want to go on the attack these days, and I'm probably the worst for you know coming out there. And but you know, I, I think that we need to be a hell of a lot kinder to people, and particularly those that are probably a little bit you know whether it be less well off than us are, are falling on bad times. We've seen a hell of a lot of empathy, compassion, a lot of people that have come to me and offered us so much over um, through COVID-19. And it's kind of changed, like going back this a long time, but you know, to see all the work that went in from um, the community and voluntary sector and the people I work with have done amazing work over the last number of weeks. And I think if we could keep that up, you know, or that level of progression that we could move on and strides. But yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the housing referendum is so might ask everybody to get on and everybody needs to jump behind that kind of campaign over the coming months. Absolutely, man, absolutely. And if people want to learn more about Inner City Helping Homeless or or want to follow you and, and kind of your commentary over the next little while on those issues, where can they get it? Uh, you can, what, what are we, uh, in ICHH.ie or ICHH Dublin on Twitter, or Anthony ICHH on Twitter as well. So, you know, everything is really there in terms of what, like, we, 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 
a very big follow-on there, and, and that's where we get our information now. You know, we inform the public of everything that's going on. You know, you'll see how many people are being engaged with every night. All of our figures are put up there every day with a team here at the office. They do amazing work. So you kind of follow us and, and see what we're doing on a daily basis there. So Anthony OICHH or OICHH Dublin um, on Twitter or OICHH.ie. Brilliant, brilliant, man. And yeah. th- thanks to, to you and your team for all that you're doing, and, and thanks again for your Thank time. Thank you, Roy. Thanks for having Appreciate us on. It, man. He's a passionate man, isn't he? Yeah, very passionate. That was that was really good. We didn't even really have to ask anything because yeah. he was answering what questions we were going to be asking. Yeah, I was going to, like, I mean, stating the obvious, he's clearly very knowledgeable about it because he lives it. He's, you know what I mean, like he said himself, like he, he's he's been involved for a long time and He's doing 16, 17 hour days of just non-stop, you know, working yeah. in it. But, but, but because of how big the problem has become, um, it requires people like him putting that kind of work in, which is, which is madness. like Madness. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But, uh, yeah, de- definitely, lads, uh, you know, where you can support these kind of charities and support these kind of people that are doing that work because, I mean, God knows that the fucking people that are elected to solve these issues aren't doing it. So unfortunately, They're definitely fail in the, in the homeless department anyway. Because yeah. you should, the homelessness, like the the fact that we were saying in the interview that there's a homelessness industry and the private yeah. companies run it, that and direct provision, I think, is a disgrace. Isn't it? Uh, it's something actually. I probably should have asked a question, but but just because Anthony was just speaking, I was more so just listening. I wasn't really thinking of questions on the spot, so much. But like. Isn't it mad how everybody kind of is knows a little bit or is aware that like America has a prison industry and half the reason that so many people are in prison in America and half the reason there's so many problems around prison in America is because it's a for-profit business yeah. and every everyone's in each other's pocket essentially for it. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many parallels that you could draw in the homelessness industry yeah. and yet, you know, it's not talked about, it's not looked at, it's not, no. or at least it's not widely talked about, you know what I mean? No. But, it's, but it it's, exactly, it's exactly like the prison industry, it's a shit shop. Yeah. But it is, it's, it's a for-profit <laughs> business, and when you have private companies coming in and tendering for contracts to supply, you know, rooms or supply food or all this kind of thing, then and the state are doling out millions for it, then you have to look at it and you have to say, hang on a second, somebody's getting rich off the fact that we as a country, have failed people. That's yeah, not yeah. right. That is not right, like. No, it's not at all. But, uh, yeah, that's that's WTS 207. Lads, thanks, man, for listening. Graeme, if, so if people would like to listen to all preceding episodes to this, where would one tune in? They can go to WTSpod.com or they can search WTSpod on any podcast provider. Uh, Podcast Republic, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcast anywhere and anywhere you get a podcast you can get Danny at Dan Joe Murray and you, on Twitter and you can get me at Marigamania on Twitter and then until next time Danny clear eyes all hearts can't lose hoop sweet <laughs> <laughs>